Well, good evening. I certainly appreciate each and every one of you coming out tonight. I don't know about your church, but I think this last Sunday was my lowest Sunday of the year. I think everybody was on vacation. I looked out there and I said, where is everybody? I think they were on vacation. So, But we had a great offering. So what does that tell you? Still trying to figure that out. If you come over to our church, it's going to look like a bomb zone. We, today we dug 900 feet of trenches, five feet deep, two feet wide, to put in electrical, video, and water lines five feet below the surface. So hopefully we'll get those filled in by Sunday. Otherwise we're going to have cars in a ditch. <laughs> oh my. I certainly appreciate your church. I told my wife last Sunday what a wonderful time it was to be at your church. And I'm so thankful that you're marching forward for the Lord. And I had a number of folks tell me last Wednesday they couldn't be here this week. They were going to be gone. But I appreciate you folks being here. So it's a blessing. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning, this evening. Chapter 5. We'll finish in the morning. <laughs> had a funny thing happen in church Sunday. We had some guests come. We had a councilman, Wade Fleming from Troy. We had State Senator John Popper George come. And somebody that I didn't expect came. And it was a, a congressman. His name leaves my mind right now. He's from Detroit. John Conyers. Thank you. He came again without warning. And he had a bright red coat on. Well, I figured this is a good thing. This man needs to hear the gospel. So I had introduced the other two politicians and their wives. They were there with them. And John was sitting in the last row of the church. I didn't get a chance to see him before the service. He came a little late. And there was this lovely... Uh, African-American woman sitting with him. And, of course, I'm in the front. He's in the back. So I, I naturally thought it was his wife. So I said, uh, Congressman Conyers, we're glad to have you. And is that your wife, Monica? And all I heard was silence. Of course, I had forgotten that his wife, Monica, went to prison last Friday. Actually, I didn't forget it. I didn't know it. I knew she had legal trials and legal problems, but she actually went to prison on Friday, three or four days ago. And so I asked him publicly, is that your wife, Monica? Anyway, I told that story to Dr. McCabe at the seminary today, and he was laughing from one end of the hallway to the other end of the hallway. He loves it when I do this stuff. He just eats it up. He passes it on to all the other professors. Then he gets back to Pastor Dorn, gets on Facebook, around the world. Finally, I hear about it again. But, but you know, I thought, in the, in, in the end, I thought, well, it's probably justice that that happened <laughs> in one way or another. Next time the man really needs to let me know he's coming. Anyway, uh, our folks had a good laugh with that. So, at my expense. All right, we're looking here at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And I realize that you're reading the New American Standard here. Is that correct? All right. I actually didn't know that. So, my notes are printed in the New American Standard. That's a good thing. But I actually brought two Bibles with me, my King James and my ESV. And I left my New American Standard on my desk. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this text to you from the ESV, which is very close to the New American Standard. But the, when I actually work through the text, I'll work through it in the New American Standard because I have those in my notes. Okay? Just didn't want you to be confused about that. But let's read along here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice for fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. 
For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much, with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Some months ago, I was reading a book by Michael Horton, and it was called The Gospel-Driven Life. And one of the chapters in that book really intrigued me. And it was entitled this way, Don't just, juice, don't just, don't just do something, sit there. I thought that was a clever title. Don't just, don't just do something, sit there. And his point in that chapter was that careful thought needs to accompany our acts of worship, whether it be private or public, as opposed to perfunctory worship that is void of reverence or sobriety or sincerity. So, in other words, he's saying don't just go to church. When you sit there, really pay attention, really listen. That was the just of the title. And that's very much what the author here in the Hebrew, Koheleth, which means teacher, but it's Solomon by proper name. And if you don't believe me on that, read Pastor TJ's THM dissertation. He wrote it on the Solomonic authorship of Ecclesiastes. Sounds very exciting. And he proved it was Solomon. But nevertheless, the name in Hebrew is Koheleth, and it means teacher. And so Koheleth here in chapter 5 is telling us that he is performing an important role for society. And his role for society in Old Testament Hebrew society was the role of a critic. Now, critics have a way of rubbing us all the wrong way. But we would find it hard, frankly, to get along without social critics. Critics, I think, do render some important service. Now, I'm not talking about having a critical spirit in church, but I'm talking about arts critics, political critics, etc. Those who are commentators of our society. For instance, when a arts critic describes an attractive art exhibit, he might be telling you a nice way of preparing yourself for a profitable Saturday. Uh, when a drama critic pans a senseless play or a poorly written book, uh, they save ourselves the effort of going to the play or reading that particular book. And frankly, who wants to spend an evening with a soprano that sings flat or a tenor that doesn't quite hit his high notes? The point is, discerning critics can rescue us from these types of events. But they actually do a lot more. When social critics do their best work, they give discernment, and that discernment tends to rub off on us. We learn the difference, for instance, between great music and very trite tunes. We might learn the difference between a compelling drama and a contrived plot in a play, or between banal verse and well-crafted poetry. In the art field, we learn the difference, hopefully, between random splashes of color and distinguished art. So in this sense, good critics enhance our sense of beauty. They invigorate our imagination. They enlarge our appreciation of life. Koheleth, however, was not an arts critic. Koheleth was a social critic, the kind that call our attention to moral trends that go on in society changing attitudes toward family and society, or even unethical behavior of societal leaders. And this is the kind of contribution he makes to the Jewish community in the Old Testament. Jewish society at that time had overvalued human wisdom to the point that they thought through human wisdom that they could control God or even predict what God would do. Also, in their society, they had overpriced Pleasure. They thought, again, that by indulging in pleasure, they could find a true meaning of life. Thirdly, they had overestimated personal freedom. 
in making their life-changing decisions by ignoring the mystery of God's ways and the inevitability of death. So they had overemphasized their personal freedom, overprized pleasure. They had overestimated uh, personal freedom and overvalued human wisdom. So Koheleth, in this book, offers solutions to those mistakes. And he makes these critical observations. For instance, he fleshes out a picture of life that enjoys the simple things of life as divine gifts. We talked about that last week. He admonishes us to live modestly in this book, peacefully, reverently, and sensibly. To sum it up, a life that walks in the fear of God. Therefore, the religious practices of Kohelet's Jewish countrymen did not escape his keen eye. Fake religion distressed him as much as proud wisdom or vain pleasure or hollow freedom. And these particular people had a very mechanical attitude about sacrifices which God had commanded them to perform as an act of worship. Uh, they were offering sacrifices in huge volumes and with great attention to detail. But they were missing the real meaning behind these sacrifices and the key purpose of these animal offerings. And this is applicable to us because Koheleth offers three wise admonitions that, if heeded, would greatly restore their fellowship with God. And it's these three wise admonitions that will help restore our fellowship with God in worship. And that's so important for us. And the first wise admonition he tells us is in verse 1. And I would sum it up this way. Listening to God is better than sacrifice. Listening to God is better than sacrifice. That's his first wise admonition. So look at verse 1. I'll read this out of the New American Standard. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. In listening to God being better than animal sacrifices, he tells us, first of all, to wisely sacrifice. Foolish sacrifice never meant not to sacrifice in the Old Testament, but they were to sacrifice wisely. So he compares it here with the sacrifice of fools. He says that the sacrifice of fools is an empty sacrifice, meaning you go through the ritual, but you miss the meaning. You miss the meaning. Now you have to ask yourself, in the Old Testament, what was the basic purpose of sacrifices, of the offerings that God required? Well, ultimately, it really was reconciliation with God. It was through the sacrifices that people were reconciled to God. And we see this reconciliation expressed by a communion between the person and God. And he expresses that with the words, listen and hear. And so he admonishes us to hear and to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And that describes a personal intimacy with God. That we go to Him for worship and fellowship by listening and hearing very well. So when a person in the Old Testament offered a sacrifice, those sacrifices were to make, meet their basic human needs. They brought forgiveness when those sacrifices were given with a contrite heart. So a man offers a sacrifice with a contrite heart, he offers it in faith. He actually walks away with forgiveness. You say, well, doesn't the book of Hebrews teach that the blood of bulls and goods, can, blood of bulls and goats, cannot expiate sin? Yes, it does teach that. They cannot give any final expiation of sin. But in the Old Testament, a person did walk away with real forgiveness, with real expiation. The point is, those sacrifices had to be validated by the one true sacrifice, which was Christ. So he validated all these Old Testament sacrifices by his death. So it was true. When a person offered this sacrifice in faith, they walked away with real forgiveness, if they had a contrite heart. They also expressed thanksgiving, uh, when a person was truly grateful for God and what God had done in their life. They would offer a thank offering, but it had to be accompanied by a thankful heart. And they accompanied the fulfillment of religious vows. When you made a vow unto God... Usually God had brought some unusual blessing in their life. They had a bumper crop or the animals had reproduced in large numbers or they had a healthy and 
lively and multiple family, then they would offer sacrifices there as well. So the point here is that the sacrifices were the means by which God's people were to declare their thankfulness, their dependence on God, their reconciliation with God. And what he is saying to us here is listening or paying attention to God is an essential requirement. You couldn't just offer the sacrifices without listening to God, without paying attention to God. If the sacrifices were to have any meaning at all, you had to do so. So the whole requirement behind the sacrifice was always reverential obedience and humble repentance. So he's telling us, if we're going to listen to God being better than sacrifice, it necessitates, number one, you have to wisely sacrifice. You have to approach God the way God had required. Now, in the New Testament, we go through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Melchizedekian priest. But still, we have to go with a heart that is very genuine and very sincere, that's repentant over sin, thankful for God's goodness, and that we keep our commitments to God that we have promised God when God has blessed us. Number two, listening to God is better than sacrifice is evidenced by wisely sacrificing, but two, by guarding our steps. So we listen to God, which is better than sacrifice, by guarding our steps. So let's look here again. He says, guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Now that's an English idiom. Have you ever heard the term, watch your step? You ever heard that? Now, you come on our property at First Baptist of Troy, you better watch your step. You might be in an early grave. We have more holes and more ditches around that place. We keep filling them in. And we're building an in-ground cement swimming pool in front of the red brick house. Not really. It's really a reservoir for water. But it'll be my backup baptistry, I'm sure. The point is, when you walk into a house of God, meaning a church, because it is a house of God when God's people are there. He says, guard your step. Watch your step. And exactly it means, shemor reglakab, which means to literally guard your feet. What does that mean, guard your feet? Well, he's saying that, saying that our demeanor has to be a certain way when we go to worship. It has to be a heart that is oriented toward obedience. So he's saying, when you go to worship, walk prudently. Now, I think we have a parallel to this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs uses the term feet really as a total way of life. Your feet can lead you toward God. Your feet can lead you away from God. For instance, Proverbs 4.26, Ponder the path of your feet and let all the ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. So foot is singular, feet is plural. It's important to remember that. I heard the president the other day in an interview talking about feet, and he used it in the plural. He said, watch your feet. <laughs> goes right along with the 57 states and the corpsmen, Navy corpsmen. Well, I can't criticize him too much because I've said worse things than that, I'm sure. But nevertheless, here when it says guard your feet, he's talking about your way of life. So specifically, what is he saying here? He is saying that when we come to worship the Lord, we have to walk prudently. We have to guard our feet. We have to watch our step. In other words, we really have to be careful about how we are living when we come to church. And you know, the average person, when they go to church, they're fulfilling a perfunctory duty. That's why you have McChurch today. You go in, you get out within an hour. You can go on a Saturday night, get it over in an hour. Everything's done in an hour, and you're done. And these churches have three, four, five services on a Sunday morning, but they're all an hour long, and you're done. And the rest of the day is for you. I always call it McChurch. It's like McDonald's, drive through Get it over with. You go to leave. Well, God is saying, when you come to church, you should have a sober attitude about how you're living. Watch your step. Walk prudently. Make sure that your feet are leading you in a way that is taking you toward God, not away from God. So that's the idea. Come to church, watch your step. So he's saying guard it. But specifically, what were they misapplying when they were actually going to the temple? 
Well, I think they were treating the sacrifices, frankly, like magic. They somehow thought God was amused by blood and smoke. It was a big show for God. They really forgot that the heart and spirit were essential ingredients in true sacrifice. And that's what he's saying here. You come and make sure your heart is right. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. It doesn't mean the sacrifices themselves weren't necessary or important, but this had to be there. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. So God wasn't amused by blood and smoke. The blood and smoke were necessary, but God wasn't amused by it. It wasn't a show. They also forgot what Samuel had once said to Saul. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So the fat of rams was actually important. Sacrifice was important. But to obey was much more important. And to hearken or to listen to God was much more important. And that was in their system. In our system, we can come to church, sing our songs, pray, listen to a sermon, fellowship, leave. But if we're not listening to God during our services, then we're not guarding our steps. And it's going to affect our feet. It's going to affect our way of life. And I do think a lot of people don't listen. I, I've talked to my own children about this. I used to say to my son, I said, now Luke, you always sat in the second row during all those sermons. I preached out all that stuff you're now so excited about. And he's all pumped up about this truth and that truth and this book and that book. And I said, now Luke, you heard all those sermons for years in our church in the second row. He said, Dad, I didn't hear one of them. He meant it. He goes, Dad, honestly, I didn't hear one of those sermons. I was in zombie land. I just came and I was staring and I wasn't listening. This happens a lot. This really happens a lot. I think a lot of people in our churches never grow in God because when they come to church, they're not guarding their feet. They're not watching their lives. And they're not really listening. So their spiritual sacrifices are, are pretty anemic. Is it possible for a church person to go to church for 25 years and not grow as a Christian? Yes, it is. If they do not wisely sacrifice and if they do not guard their steps. And then thirdly, under the same point of listening to God is better than sacrifice, is this point, avoid disaster. By wisely sacrificing and by... In the second point, guarding our steps, we avoid disaster in our lives. Notice what he says here. Again, verse 1. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, this is an interesting phrase. I took this class in seminary under Dr. McCabe, and we translated the whole book in Hebrew together, and were tested over that. And I remember Dr. McCabe talking about this particular phrase. And he asked this question. Does this mean they do not know that they are committing an act of moral evil, or does it mean that they are ignorant of creating for themselves a disastrous or calamitous situation? That's the question. In other words, the ignorance here. Is the ignorance that they don't know they're committing a moral evil, or is the ignorance they do not know they're creating for themselves havoc in their lives? Well, here's how you answer the question. The word for evil here is the word now, that's a great word. You can remember that one. It's like when you get a touchdown. They got a touchdown. Don't see too many of those with the lions. Nevertheless, but there's another word for evil, and it's the word rashai. The word rashai is normally used by Kaheleth in this book for moral evil. The word ra is normally used for Calamity, like a tornado or an earthquake. The word here is ra. Here's what he's saying. They do not know that they are creating for themselves havoc, a disastrous situation. That's what they don't know. People who are worshiping God without listening to God, without hearkening to God, without a very serious attitude about what God is saying to them, are creating for themselves a disastrous situation. 
how true that is. I think we have a very good Christian school. But I can tell you that there are kids who have gone through our school that did not wisely sacrifice, that did not guard their steps, and did not listen to God. And they created for themselves havoc in their lives. A disastrous situation in their lives. Now I'm talking about kids who have good parents and have a good family and good upbringing. But they weren't listening. And I'm talking about really, really good families. And you see that on occasion. You do create havoc in your life and, frankly, the lives of others when you approach God carelessly or apathetically or with an independent spirit or you reserve for yourself the right to disobey God. All of us are going to sin, but we all know there are certain decisions, sinful decisions, that if you make it in your life can just create havoc in your life and create disasters in your life. And so you really have to wisely sacrifice, guard your steps, to avoid disaster. And that is is true not only biblically via inspiration, folks, it's true experientially. We could go on and on with examples of that very thing. But take God's word for it. The second the second tobe here, T O B, a tobe is a proverb in the Bible. It's a what we call a better than proverb. Such and such is better than such and such. Is this sincerity in prayer is better than extravagance. Sincerity in prayer is better than extravagance. So look at verses 2 and 3. He says in verse 2, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So sincerity in prayer being better than extravagance is told us, first of all, by the admonition in prayer. What is the admonition in prayer? Do not be rash in prayer. That's point one underneath Roman numeral two. Sincerity in prayer is better than extravagance. The admonition in prayer, do not be rash. So here, Kahelis is reminding us, hearers, that our great God sees through extravagance in prayer. You are not to be hasty in thought or speech in prayer because you are in the presence of God at the temple. So he was really telling folks, don't make wild promises, don't make unguarded commitments, and certainly don't get caught up in vain repetitions. Those things have to be avoided. Measured speech, appropriate actions were to be considered expressions of sound conduct by the wise. Now this word, do not be hasty, is the word bahel. It's an interesting word because it's used in chapter 7, verse 9, about people who have a short, fused temper. Don't approach God in prayer like a guy who has a quick temper. You know, people that have quick tempers just fly off the handle. They say things without thinking. The root here is used of a volatile term for wild, rash, mindless conduct. Another example of it is Proverbs 1.6. Feet that make haste to shed blood. Same word, bahalm, haste. A person who makes haste to shed blood is a person who's enraged with anger and just runs out and makes haste. The other day there was a young man, I think 16 or 15 years of age, and a 300-pound high school kid came over to the house and he started pounding on him. Well, the 300-pound high school kid leaves the house, walks down the street, kid goes in the house, and in a haste, grabs a butcher knife, runs down the street as a 15-year-old, and goes after that 300-pound kid and stabs him and kills him. And now the 15-year-old is being held for murder. I mean, it's just a tragic thing, isn't it? But he made haste. He's saying, don't have that kind of mindset when it comes to prayer. You don't just rush into the presence of God in prayer with that kind of hastiness. Again, Proverbs 1.16 talks about an impulsive litigant who hastily goes to court. Proverbs 25, verse 8. That's our society. You know, they'll sue a ham sandwich today in our society. It's a nothing for people to run the litigation. So he says, don't be rash in your prayer. That's so important. Well, the reason for the admonition is this. God is infinite. Why should you not be rash in your praying? Because God is infinite. Look at verse 2. 
For God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. So the reason you should let your words be few, meaning be careful, is because God's in heaven and you're not. You're on the earth. Well, what's the gulf between heaven and earth? Practically speaking, it's infinite. I mean, you and I cannot span heaven and earth just like there's an infinite gulf between God and man. So prayer, being a solemn conversation with our mysterious God, recognizes the vast gap between human beings and God measured by the difference between heaven and earth. In, in theology, we call it the creator-creature distinction. You've probably heard that already. That's a great term. God's the creator. We're the creature. There is a fundamental distinction between us. So we need to recognize that with sobriety in prayer and not extravagance in prayer. So when we pray, folks, it's not the volume of the prayer or, frankly, the eloquence of the prayer or the repetitions in the prayer, meaning the frequency of prayers, that ultimately influence God. I mean, Jesus made it clear that he and his Father are not manipulated by vain repetitions. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 7, they think they shall be heard because of their much speaking. We need to remember that. That our prayers should be simple, sincere, measured words showing that we truly submit to the majesty of God and seek His help. You know, actually, that will encourage you in your prayer life. Because we all get discouraged over the length of our prayers. And how many times I've heard preachers condemn us for singing the song, Sweet Hour of Prayer. I almost don't even want to sing that song because... Every time I sing it, some evangelist is going to get up and sing or say, and you sing sweet hour of prayer and you're only praying for ten minutes. Well, the solution to that is quit singing that song. (laughs) And you can imagine if you approach prayer from a time limit constraint. I have to pray so long to be spiritual. Or... The thing that I always have feared in a church, we're going to do a 24-hour prayer chain. And you just feel sorry for the guy who gets stuck with the 3 a.m. deal. Okay? Uh, And everybody's coming to church sort of bleary-eyed. I think behind some of those things, there's a thinking that if we can just stuff the ballot box with God, then we're going to get an answer. But what God is really saying is that when you pray to me, I want you to pray with a submission to my majesty, a measured speech. I want you to think carefully about what you're saying. I want you to be sincere. And don't be so concerned about extravagance, about your volume and your eloquence. Rather, be really concerned about your sobriety, your sincerity, your submission, your simplicity, and pray that way. And let the time factor take care of itself. In fact, I think good praying is like good eating. They say if you don't want to get fat, which I am a little fat, but if you don't want to get fat, they say you should eat about six times a day little portions of food, and then you don't get hungry. I only know this in theory. But I can say in prayer is probably a good practice. It's probably good to pray at different periods of time in the day rather than trying to do it all at once where you find yourself sometimes dazing off or not concentrating. And so that's why he says let your words be few here. In other words, don't come to God with simply a verbosity in prayer. He'll hear me for my much speaking. He'll hear me for my vain repetitions. He'll hear me because I have stuffed the ballot box. He'll hear me because this is such a beautiful prayer I pray. He'll hear you because there's a submissive heart to God. There's a simplicity, sincerity, and sobriety in your praying. Where you are recognizing while you're praying, God's in heaven and you're on the earth, so there's a huge gap between you and God. And you better recognize that when you're praying. Yes, God is a friend of sinners and Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's only because God has condescended toward us. It's not because there's no distinction between us and God. So there shouldn't be a a haphazardness with prayer. Now, in a Christian school, I see this all the time. I'll say, student so-and-so, Joe Monkey Wrench, whoever you are, 
uh, stand up and pray. And it's terrible to hear the way they pray sometimes. It's I don't even know if I can imitate it. They'll they'll get up and say, Oh dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for blessed teacher, blessed class in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, that's somewhat typical of what you hear. And and I'm always left a little dumbfounded. And I'm just looking, and I'm not looking for an extravagant prayer. I'm not looking for a loud prayer. But I would like to hear a thoughtful prayer, a sincere prayer, a sober prayer, a prayer that had some concept that he and God weren't on the same level. But they're teenagers, and so you've got to give teenagers a break. Hopefully they'll mature. And usually they do. Usually. That's what he's talking about. God is infinite. And he explains it in verse 3. Any other approach to prayer is a fantasy. Notice verse 3. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Now, this verse 3 is connected to verse 2. That little word for is connecting verse 3 back to verse 2. So, well, what does this mean? Well, he's using two colons here as a comparison. The first colon is this. For the dream comes through much effort. He's saying work creates dreams. Or much activity can create a dreamlike state. He is saying work can lead to many dreams. When you really work hard and you're exhausted, sometimes you just fall into a sleep and you're so tired, it leads to dreaming. Whereas a person can so tire themselves with work, they lose touch with reality, and the byproduct of that stress and anxiety can be dreaming. That's probably true. Uh, I don't. I think I've experienced that. When I get really tired and really exhausted, I'll fall asleep and I'll have some really strange dreams. Well, he's making a comparison. He says, in the same way that much work and effort can produce a fantasy world or a dreamlike state, he makes the other statement. So multiple words or frenzied words will make a person's foolishness in prayer evident. In other words, when a person is just throwing words at God, they're not thinking about what they're saying. They're just throwing many, many words, multiple words in a fast and furious sense, but they're not thinking about the person to whom they're praying. They're not thinking about that gulf between them and God, so there should be a certain level of respect there. They're not thinking about the submission to His majesty and sincerity, sobriety that should be in prayer. He's saying that that multiplicity of words shows a person's foolishness. So stale piety permits vain dreamlike babbling as a substitute for genuine prayer. I have seen this when I go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. You'll see Jewish rabbis and other Orthodox Jews going there and they bob back and forth while they're sticking their prayers in the cracks of the walls, what they call their phylacteries in the cracks of the walls. And it almost looks like they're speaking in tongues. You see their mouths moving rapidly, mumbling, bobbing at the same time. Does that give you some idea? What's going on there, folks? There's mumbling, there's babbling. There's... You know why they bob, by the way? I asked one of the tour leaders, why are they bobbing? They're bobbing so they don't fall asleep. So they get in the habit of bobbing so if they bob, they can stay awake while they're doing this. It's hilarious. It's exactly what this passage is talking about. Or, and if you're a Roman Catholic, I'm sorry to not to, I'm not trying to offend you, but the, going through the rosary beads or saying Hail Marys or Our Fathers, repeating that over and over and over again. Uh, there's a man in my church who is saved. He knows the Lord. He loves the Lord. And he, he came from a Coptic background. And he carries these beads around with him all the time. And I've talked to him about it. I said, why do you carry those beads around with you? And they've become a rabbit's foot to him, a good luck charm. And I've warned him about it. I said, do not pray with those beads as some kind of helper to pray. You know, counting them. Or, I said, that's not wise prayer. Said, I'll never get them away from it. It's like trying to get a binky away from a two-year-old. Okay, you just can't get it away. 
you'd have to literally put a gun to his head to get him. Uh, they're just, it's in his psyche. But I tried to change the way he was thinking about that. So God is saying to us that extravagance in prayer, uh, excuse me, sincerity in prayer is better than extravagance. And that brings me to the last point. Faithfulness in keeping vows is better than fickleness. And this is where the passage is going. This is the conclusion of the first two points. Faithfulness in keeping vows is better than fickleness. So let's look here. This is his final criticism that their rash vows offered unto the Lord were in connection with these sacrificial offerings. Verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Faithfulness in keeping vows to God is better than fickleness with God. Four things here. One, pay your vows to God. Vows were a prominent part of Hebrew religious life in Israel. A vow was a way to show God you took what you were saying to God very seriously. You would say, God, I'm going to do such and such and I make a vow. And in times of emergency, people often use vows to underline their prayer requests. I'll give you an example. Hannah, remember she was a barren woman. She longed for a son. She said, God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And she did. She brought him back to the temple after nursing was over and he was very young age, I forget exact which, maybe four or five. And she brings him back to the temple, puts him under the tutelage of Eli. Well, that was a big sacrifice. I mean, that's the ultimate Christian school. You take him there and you leave him there 24 hours a day. Uh, we're not having that kind of a school. Well, we can handle them about six hours a day. That's our limit. But for them, 24 hours a day. Well, that was a vow. That was a good thing. That was a godly thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Other people made vows. A frightened soldier, for instance, would make a vow in battle. God, if you'll save my life, I will use the rest of my life in a certain way. Or a person who is going to be convicted of a crime and they were innocent might make a special sacrifice. Or if a person simply wanted God's blessing, he said, God, if you'll bless my crops, I'm going to use that blessing for the temple in certain ways. And this is common in the Old Testament. The psalmist says in Psalm 22.5, I will pay my vows before those who fear Him. So it was easy to vow. But it was hard to pay the vow. You know, easy to make a commitment. You make a commitment to missions. You make a commitment to the building project. You make a commitment to visitation. You make a commitment to do a service in the church. It's easy to make a commitment. It's hard to pay the vow. And so the point is, pay the vow. How easy it is to pay, how easy it is to vow, how hard it is to pay. And what God is telling us is that our commitments to God cannot be separated from vowing and fulfilling the vow. This is what Kohelet is criticizing. Psalm 76.11 Make your vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. So he's saying pay your vows to God. But secondly he is saying faithfulness is better than Faithfulness in keeping vows is better than fickleness. And how do we show that faithfulness? Number two, do not delay your vows. Verse four, he says, do not be late in paying it. So the prohibition is not simply saying you're wrong if you don't fulfill your vow. He's saying you're wrong if you don't fulfill your vow in a timely fashion. So he's actually rebuking delay. And why is God rebuking delay? Because God thinks of a man or a woman who makes vows to God and delays those vows as a person who is a fool. He says here, for God takes no delight in fools. Now you understand, fools are speaking so quickly, so rapidly in prayer. They're not thinking seriously and soberly about what they're saying, so they make rash vows to God and they don't take their vows seriously. It's like kids at camp making commitments around the campfire and they get caught up in the moment, but they don't take it seriously. Easy to make the vow at the campfire, at the wilds. You know, we take our seniors down there and they ask for commitments at the end of the series of sermons. And they say, pick up this small stick, throw it in the fire, and it's a commitment to God that you're a living sacrifice unto Him. I can't tell you how many times I've seen 
haphazard seniors pick up that stick, walk to the fire, and throw the stick in the fire. And they're not thinking at all about commitment, but they made a commitment. You threw the stick in the fire publicly, it was a commitment. But they're not serious about it. So he says, fools speak so much they don't take what they vow seriously. So he uses this better than proverb. He says, better not to vow than to vow and not fulfill it. The point there is not that you shouldn't make commitments to God. He's simply saying, make your commitments to God with seriousness because there are consequences for not fulfilling our commitments to God. So pay your vows unto God. Do not delay your vows. Thirdly, do not excuse your vows. Don't excuse your vows. Don't make an excuse for not fulfilling it. Verse 6, Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now put yourself back in their day. Apparently one way to get out of your vow to God was to tell the priest who came to collect the vow. And a lot of times the vows were material things. It was some type of material offering for the temple. So the priest shows up. He's the messenger. He's the temple representative. King James says angel, but it means messenger. The word is malak, and it's with a definite article. So it's the temple messenger. This is the messenger coming from the temple saying, you made a vow publicly with a sacrifice to God. Now it's time to pay the vow, whatever the vow is. He says, don't tell the messenger that it was a mistake. And the background here goes to Deuteronomy 23, 21-23, where voluntary vows in the temple were considered binding by God. So to regard your vow as a simple mistake was considered sinful and could result in the loss of all the Israelite had worked to achieve. Now this word mistake is very interesting. The word is shagaga. No, it's not Lady Gaga, but she's a big mistake as well. The word is shagaga. And it means an unintended commitment. Don't tell God it was an inadvertent and unintended commitment. Because that excuse making doesn't carry any weight with God. It actually provokes God's anger and His divine displeasure to human disobedience. The result is, God may destroy the work of your hands, it says. This is referencing the material wealth that God may have blessed an Old Testament Jew with. You know, when the investment paid off or when the bumper crop came in, somehow the vow now was conveniently gainsaid. You know Christians do this kind of thing a lot. God, if you'll give me a child, I'll raise this child for the Lord. I'll dedicate this child to God and raise him for the Lord. But then they don't. Or God, if you'll, if you'll allow me to get married, we'll have a God-honoring marriage. But then they get married and they don't go to church. Or God, if you'll give me a job, I'll be faithful in supporting the Lord's work. And they don't. I mean, this kind of stuff happens all the time with people. I mean, people are very fickle when it comes to com com completing their vows. So God says He would have the penalty fit the crime, which is what? I will chabel, I will destroy the gains. This means nothing to you, but take my word for it. This is an intensive form of the Hebrew word. So it's saying God will bring the gain to ruin. God will bring the gain to ruin. I mean, one reason why when I make commitments to the Lord financially or in other ways, I fulfill them because I don't want God to bring the gain that God has given me, the joy and the blessing that God has given to me. I don't want Him to bring it to ruin. He would have every right to bring it to ruin. I don't want him to bring it to ruin. He would have the right to do that. So if God gives me children, I'm going to raise them for the Lord. If God gives me a wife, I'm going to make that marriage honoring to the Lord. If God gives me uh, a ministry, I'm going to use that ministry to honor the Lord as much as I humanly can do. Uh, if God gives me money, I'm going to honor God with the tenth. By the way, the tenth in Hebrews chapter 7, you know what it is in the, in the Greek there? Just translate it. The top of the heap. <laughs> now, that'll preach. <laughs> the top of the heap. In other words, God, you've given me money for my labor. You get the top of the heap. Not the bottom. 
which is where everybody lives. Give God the top of the heap, not the bottom of the dregs. So he says here, don't make an excuse for your vows. And then finally, when you do fulfill your vow, point D, fulfill it with unconditional seriousness. Now this one you have to really pay attention to. You've got to put your thinking hat on here. Nazvi reads, For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness or vanity or a frustrating enigma. You could translate it that way. Rather, fear God. Now this, this is a very interesting verse. This is the summary verse. This is the whole bottom line of the whole argument of 1 through 6. But the issue here is you see that term emptiness or vanity? Do you know that term is in the same exact grammatical slot as the word dreams and words? Here's how it literally reads. It's saying, for in many dreams and in many words and in many vanities. Fear God. So how should we handle this? I think the best way to handle this is this way. That first term, for, is a very common preposition in the Hebrew language. And it can mean and, it can mean for, but it also can be what we call in English an adversative, in spite of. So here's how I think it could be translated. For in spite of many dreams, many words, and many vanities or enigmas or emptiness, fear God. So he's recapturing all six verses. Remember he talked about the picture of busyness, haste, verbosity, fickleness in the worship of God. So he sums that all up. In light of all those things, and he summarizes it with dreams and vanities and many words, verbosity, he says instead of all of that, set that aside. Instead, he says, truly fear God. The word there is key, means sincerely fear God. It's an intensive use of that preposition. Surely, indeed, certainly fear God. So what he is saying is this. To sum it up in your life, set aside the verbosity, set aside the fickleness, set aside the insincerity and emptiness and busyness that has accompanied all your worship. Instead, when you come to worship, worship obediently and sincerely, and he represents that thought by truly fear God. Now, you know, Proverbs says, written by Solomon, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. That means the fear of God is the foundation for wisdom. No fear of God, no wisdom. No fear of God, no true biblical knowledge. No fear of God, no skillfulness in living a Christian life. What he is saying is fulfill your vows with unconditional seriousness. God must be taken with unconditional seriousness. Now I'm done except for this one final illustration. When my son, Luke Harding, and his friend, Michael Walker, and his friend, Tim Zellers, graduated from Bethany Christian School about four years ago, they all went down to the wilds for their senior trip. Now, Mike was a quiet kid, very good. He was a valedictorian. Luke was a very outgoing kid. He was a valedictorian. Tim was the school goofball. But they were friends, the three stooges. And they played soccer together. They played baseball together. They played basketball together. They were in the choir together, the ensemble together, band together, orchestra, etc. did all those things. Mike was a serious kid. But not, but not a spiritual kid. Luke was a fun-loving kid, very outgoing, great personality, but not a spiritual kid. Tim, he was outgoing too, but he was a goofy kid. He just did goofy things. He almost got shipped several times from our school just for being a nut. But I always talked Mr. McElwain out of it. I always said, now, Mr. McElwain, Tim's a nut. I know he's a nut. But, uh, pardon the pun, let's get them on the right boat. Okay? So those three boys are graduating. They go down to the wilds. 
They hear preaching every morning, every night. God gets a hold of all of their hearts. And at last night, they asked them to throw a stick in the fire representing their lives. Randy Hummel was preaching that night. And all three of those boys went forward and they all gave their lives to God that night. Personally, I think that's when my son trusted Christ as his Savior and Lord. I think that's when Tim trusted Christ as his Savior and Lord. And I think that's when Mike really dedicated himself to God. Well, they come out of that and they come back to my house a week later after the senior trip. Tim sits down with me. He says, Pastor, I've given my life to God. I'm saved. And I want to go to Bob Jones University and be a preacher. He was going to Western Michigan to be a pharmacist and to be with his girlfriend at Western Michigan. And he didn't have a right relationship with her. He says, I'm going to break up with my girlfriend and I'm having her come over to your house tonight, Pastor Harding. Will you help me break up with my girlfriend? Well, that's a first. Sure, Tim. Tell her to come over. So she comes over. And a reasonably nice girl, but not very serious about spiritual things. She went to Troy Christian Chapel, but she just wasn't serious about spiritual things. And I told her, I said, Tim has given his life to God. I personally think he may have been saved recently. And he's given his life to God. He wants to be a preacher. He wants to go to Bob Jones University. And he's not going to go to Western with you. And I think it's the right decision. And so he's breaking up with you. And the girl says, that's okay. And she didn't cry. She probably was saying in her heart, good riddance. <laughs> no, she, she really accepted I was amazed. And that was a good thing. That was hard for them because they had been dating for several years. So, Tim goes to Bob Jones University. Mike Walker and Luke Harding, they go to Clearwater Christian College. And there, Mike and Luke, after their sophomore year, Luke's a math major, Mike's a accounting major. Uh, they are all Bible minors. She had to be a Bible minor there. And Luke was also a music minor. Their sophomore year, they all gave their lives to serve the Lord. And they called me on the phone and they said, we want to serve God with our lives and we're going to go to seminary when we graduate. Should we change our majors now? I said, no. No, I said, go to seminary. You'll be there for four years and uh, you'll get plenty of Bible in addition to the Bible you have. So keep your major in math and accounting. You can use those things in life. They'll help you. But uh, go ahead. And you know what? They, they both are. They're both headed for seminary in about a month. And uh, Luke's getting married this Saturday to uh, a pastor's daughter. And her dad died about two years ago of cancer. And I know he would be very thrilled that his daughter's marrying a man going to the ministry because her dad was very serious about the ministry. He's a very serious man of God. His name was Dan Cummings. My point is, they made those vows way back on their senior trip at the wilds. They threw a stick in the fire. But they did it with a listening and hearkening attitude. They were faithful with their vows and not fickle. And those commitments they made in prayer weren't commitments with multiple verbosities of words. They were simple, sincere, submissive commitments to God, recognizing the majesty of God and their dependence upon God who is their creator. All of us need to make commitments to God, whether they be small or great, with that same mindset. In other words, when we come to church, we come with that mindset. We watch our step. Meaning we guard our life and we're serious about listening to God when we come to church. And hopefully, the man of God has prepared something from God's Word that's worth listening to. That's worth crossing the street to hear. But even if he hasn't done a great job preparing, and many times I have not, still, the Word of God, the Word of God is still always worth listening to. Even sometimes when it's poorly done, poorly delivered, if you'll listen, you'll get something for your soul. So I hope that will be a help and a blessing to you tonight. Uh, this passage shaped my life. And it made a difference in my son's life. And I think it will make a difference in your life. It's just a great passage in the Bible. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes, though a hard book, 
and sometimes it will drive you crazy trying to figure it out. It really has tremendous spiritual lessons for our lives. So we thank God for it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and love toward us. And thank you for this good congregation, for their outstanding pastor. And I thank you, Lord, for holding this congregation up as a light in the midst of the Clawson and Royal Oak community. So we pray, God, that you will help each of us to be sincere in our listening to God and make that a higher priority than just going through the functions of worship. To be measured in our speech when we pray to the Lord and when we give our words of request to you rather than trying to be extravagant in our prayer. And that would lead us, hopefully, to being faithful to the commitments that we make in prayer, faithful to our vows that we make in prayer, and not fickle, so that we will fulfill our vows unto God with an unconditional seriousness, truly fearing God. For if we don't fear God, we cannot have wisdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.